So I've got a question here, and it's from Todd Mercer. Todd's a technical lead and scrum master at MD Physician Services in Ottawa. The next question we have here comes in from Alan. Alan is a dynamic CRM consultant based in Berlin, in Germany. As you might have guessed, this is a special question and answer edition of the Scrum Dynamics podcast. Dermot and I are answering questions submitted by podcast listeners. Don't forget that you can submit a question by tweeting at customary, that's the word customer with a Y on the end, or using the send voicemail feature on the customary website. Just visit customary.com and click on the send voicemail button. Just before we get started, I wanted to remind you that the D365 UG Summit is happening in October this year in Phoenix, Arizona. It's on from October 15th to 18th, so that's four days I'm sure will be packed full of expert content delivered by Microsoft product team, MVPs, Microsoft partners and customers. Summit's a great opportunity to meet software vendors in the Microsoft community and to share best practices with other customers in your industry. This year, there are going to be 180 CRM sessions arranged into 12 tracks. So unless you can be in two places at once, bring along a couple of co-workers and you can exchange notes later. You can find out all about it at d365ugsummit.com. Early bird registration closes on June 28, but we're giving away a complimentary ticket. To enter that competition, visit customary.com slash blog slash summit. And remember... If you stick around to the end of the show, you can find out how to lock in a discount on the Scrum for Dynamics 365 online training course. Links to all the sites I've just referred to will be in our show notes at crm.audio. Let's get on with the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Scrum Dynamics 365 podcast. You're here with Neil Benson and myself, Dermot Ryan, on the last day of autumn. Um, I'm here in Sydney, where it's a little bit chilly. How are things up in Brisbane, Neil? It's beautiful and sunny. Good morning, Dermot. Morning. So, Neil, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, what are your hobbies? What do you do in free time when you're not scrumming? Oh, I've got a couple of little kids, or three little kids. So I spent this weekend going to swimming lessons, and I took the kids to see Peter Rabbit, the uh, the animated movie. It was awesome, so I really enjoyed that. Um, so I spent a lot of time chasing after them. How about you? I'm learning a language. I'm learning Spanish. I did Spanish way back when I was in high school. And I'm traveling to Spain this year on holiday, so I picked it up again over the last six or seven months. So that's what, one of the things I do in my spare time. Otherwise, I'm a big rugby union fan, uh, spectator these days. I used to play a bit, but not much anymore. Um, and Ireland are coming to Australia uh, the week after next for a three-test series. So I'm really looking forward to that. Getting that's right. A couple the, fir- of tests. the first test is here in Brisbane on June the 9th. So looking that's forward right. to that. Brisbane, Melbourne, and and the finale in Sydney. Yeah, two of my favourite scrum teams in the world. Oh, <laughs> dad <laughs> boom, joke, boom, obviously. Boom. Yes. <laughs> I think we've we've had a few listener questions come in over the last couple of weeks, so I thought we'd we'd put a show together going through some of those, Dermot. Yeah, sounds great. Um, a few questions coming in. The more the better. Keep them coming, please, everyone out there. Um, we love getting the questions, and we can do shows as we progress on all the Q and A that's coming in. So I've got a question here, Dermot, uh, maybe you can answer this one. It's from Todd Mercer. Todd's a technical lead and scrum master at MD Physician Services in Ottawa. Uh, uh, What's your point of view on pointing or estimating technical debt stories for scrum? His team currently only estimates points for stories that are from the stakeholders or product owners. Other teams in his organization are estimating all stories and factoring it into their velocity. Right. Great question. Thanks, Todd, for sending it in. And it's a common question that we get. 
might be a point to revisit what is technical debt. An example I used in the previous podcast was a workflow in Dynamics 365 that started off quite small and over the course of the project, the workflow got really, really big. It had lots of loops and branches in it and it became very unwieldy, very inefficient and quite slow. And that, that's an example of technical debt that would need to be cleaned up. And the team I worked with at that time decided that it'd be much better, much more efficient to break the workflow up into smaller workflows. That way it's the speed up time is better and it's much easier to maintain. So while there was a cost in technical debt to do that cleanup, the longer term benefits were much better. So that's an example of what technical debt is. Now back to Todd's question is how do you handle it in Scrum? Do you point it? Uh, does it go in the product backlog? I've seen it done in two ways. One way is that you create stories for the technical debt and the team estimate it as best they can. And it goes on the product backlog. And I'll delve into that a little bit more in a second. And the other way I've seen is that teams create a buffer within the sprint. So say five to 10% of each sprint, we're going to spend on technical debt and therefore they don't estimate it. My preference is to record the debt on the product backlog and to estimate it as a story. The reason I like doing that is that improves the transparency and the cost to the product owner. Now, obviously, your product owner might not know or understand at a technical level what each story means, because this is, after all, technical debt. Sometimes it's not something the customer can understand. So when you're writing the story, uh, write it in layman's terms as much as possible. So the product owner may not understand the nature of the debt and its effect on the value, but they should be able to, to, if you put it in clear, simple terms, they should be able to get a grasp on that and be able to prioritize these items uh, in the product backlog in relation to the other items. Now, the product backlog is not a dumping ground for the dev team either. Um, as the project <laughs> progresses, the, yeah, the dev team should act responsibly and not deliberately create technical debt. Uh, sometimes you might see teams just cutting corners. Oh, we'll look at that later on. Just do it this way for now. Um, that's not good. If at all possible, you should be avoiding technical debt because you're going to have to pay back the technical debt later on, just like on your credit card. You, you max out your credit card, you're going to have to pay it back sometime. Uh, and likewise, technical debt needs to be cleaned up sometime in the future. The product owner does not have to accept the technical debt. They may not understand it. They might push back and say, well, the dev team made this mess. You go clean it up. And the product owner may not want to pay for that. In the cons When I was a consultant, uh, you might see this sometimes in the client-consultant relationship. The customer is going, well, we paid you to do a job. You've done that job, and now I have to pay you again to redo the job because uh, they don't quite understand technical debt. The Scrum Master needs to explain to them the long-term benefits of cleaning it up. And sometimes you might have to get the heavy hitters like yourself, Neil, the, the engagement directors to come in <laughs> and, and have a chat. Um, but most, the vast majority of product owners I've worked with understand that projects incur technical debt along the way. Uh, I've never worked on a project that didn't incur technical debt. That's the nature of working in software. Hmm. So yeah, it, the answer Todd's question, my preference is to point it and put it on the backlog for transparency so the product owner can see what it's going to cost them to clean up this um, technical debt. The other way, as I said, was the buffer, 5 to 10%, uh, but there's still a cost because the dev team's capacity is lowered by that 5 or 10% to clean up technical debt. I wouldn't advise doing a sprint just for technical debt. Uh, I've seen that suggested a few times in some of the projects I've been on. Oh, we've got all these technical debt stories. Why don't we just do the next sprint of cleaning up technical debt? If you do that, 
then you're not delivering any value, any customer value to um, at the end of that sprint, which is really what we're here to do. It's all about delivering value. To them. So what I'd suggest is you write up your technical debt stories, you estimate them, put them on the backlog and do some of them each sprint, spread it out over the project as you go forward. So yeah, that's a great question, Todd. Thanks for that. Neil, do you have any thoughts on that one? Or? The, the only thing I would add there, Dermot, is I call those stories chores, the, 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 the technical debt stories that the team has written in order to improve the maintainability or the extensibility of the system. I often count the effort on a chore towards the team's velocity. I think it's, 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 a, it's a fair practice. But you're right, it, it's quite often a good debate between the product owner and the team as to whether that work is, is valuable. It's valuable to the team, and in longer term, it, it, it builds a more valuable system, but it doesn't often deliver a more valuable feature to the users. So that's where the debate arises. Great question, Todd. Great. The next question we have here comes in from Alan. Um, Alan is a dynamic CRM consultant based in Berlin, in Germany. And Alan's question is, Scrum says the most valuable items should be at the top of the backlog but I often see that those items depend on smaller, less important items. How should such a situation be handled? Don't you really use any kind of logical structuring for your sprints? For example, entity-based, uh, because otherwise I'm a bit afraid that the data model isn't developed correctly, which leads me to the next question. He's Two questions okay. here, Alan. How to make sure that the data model is sustainable, sustainably developed during the sprints? So, Neil, what do you think of that Great one? Great question. Thanks, Alan. In my Dynamics 365 projects, I use a practice called emergent design. And what that means is instead of a big analysis and design phase at the start of the project where we try to design the entire system, I let the design emerge through the course of the sprints. What that means is we design for the next set of requirements that we can see in front of us, maybe this sprint and the next sprint, but we're not trying to design too far ahead. That allows us just to build enough of the system that we deliver value today, but we avoid designing parts of the system that may get deprioritized and never get delivered later. So that saves us that effort. So I don't design all the entities. For example, at the start, I add them as required. But just like we talked about technical debt, the practice of emergent design can lead to a little bit of technical debt because when you look back at your design, it's not optimal. Therefore, you have to go back and, t and tidy parts of it up. Maybe change an entity from user-owned to um, organization-owned, which is quite a bit of work. So we have to uh, put in that effort to do that, um, uh, tidy up that technical debt. So that's the that's the approach I take. In terms of system design, and uh, the first part of Alan's question, I think, was about dependencies. And yes, there's always got to be some kind of dependencies, or not always, but there's often dependencies between stories. We do try and, and write stories so that they are small enough and they're independent. So we try and reduce dependencies between stories. If there are dependencies, then that's why, as a Scrum team, when we define the sprint backlog, it's not always the highest priority items that the product owner wants us to deliver, but the team gets to choose maybe a couple of smaller items that aren't as high in the priority, but they're required because of a dependency by some of the high value stories. So that's why the sprint backlog sometimes differs from the list of the product owner's most valuable items. Dermot, any thoughts on that? Great. So so really it's keep the, the stories small enough and independent enough so that you reduce the dependencies. Um, as far as possible. It's not always that easy, but yes, that's that's the rule of thumb. Great. 
Great question. And Dermot, Adam. I've got Thanks a question here me. from Greta. Uh, Greta Sharples is a, is a product owner here in Sydney and a big fan of yours, I think, Dermot. Yes, I worked with Greta on a pre previous project for over two So she months. said, next so, time you, yeah. you speak to Dermot, ask him this. Our business analysts, part of the development team, <laughs> development team should have all the skills necessary to do the analysis, design, development, and testing, and the release of items into production. Devs with a business analyst background often help with product backlog item analysis, sometimes design and maybe testing. So you might consider them to be part of the dev team, but you might also consider business analysts to be a proxy for the product owner. And their responsibility there is to provide and clarify and accept product backlog items. And while the product owner is part of the scrum team, they're not part of the dev team. So which is it, Dermot? Is a business analyst part of the dev team or not? Well, I'm, I'm being put on the spot now, Neil. And thanks, Greta, for sending in that question. This is something we debated a lot when we worked together. And it's actually um, a question that comes up on pretty much every project I've been on. Is the BA in or out of the dev team? So it's a tricky one. And I've, the answer is somewhere in between. I've seen BAs both in of the dev team and out of the dev team. And I'll explain that a little bit. So the traditional role of business analysts is to capture and document requirements and then make sure those requirements are delivered by the IT team. So that sounds simple enough, but it's actually really complex because um, it requires an in-depth understanding of the business and the customers and an ability to analyze and order the different viewpoints of stakeholders and facilitating negotiation between the stakeholders and the dev team about what to build. BAs be part of the dev team where they go to the ceremonies, but they do not estimate their work because the the delivery of the done product isn't in their domain. That's with the dev team, but they are part of the dev team in regards that they're running workshops and gathering their requirements. Now, in Dynamics 365, I've seen functional consultants fill that role in that they are delivering product because they're a functional consultant, but they're also acting as a BA in that they run workshops and do requirement gathering and sit with the customer, sit with the business people. Some of this can be accounted for in the product backlog by spikes, or you can have buffers to do such work, or if it's workshops, then the capacity of the dev team would be reduced. But these individuals would still be part of the dev team. However, if the BA is acting as a proxy product owner, the product owner is stretched too thin working on multiple projects or with several teams, then the BA should be considered as external to the dev team. That would be my preference. Um, they don't do any of the build work, and especially again in the consultancy client relationship where the dev team is from the consultancy and the BAs are from the client side, I'd advise having the BAs external to the dev team because they're representing the customer and they're acting as a product owner. Most Scrum gurus out there and Scrum aficionados will say at all costs, avoid a proxy product owner, that there is only one product owner who makes the decisions. But in the real world, I've found this to be ineffectual and product owners need help. They're often stretched very, very thin and they delegate to proxy product owners. And I've seen the BA uh, fill that role quite a lot. In that situation, I'd recommend having the BAs external to the team. Um, but I have seen them work internal to the team. So I'm not sure if I've answered the question very well, Greta. It's a bit of a horses for courses, depending on your project, depending on your client, depending on the dynamic of the team itself. Uh, good. Do you, it's, do you have it's, on that one? You know, it's a lively debate. I think th the difference for me, a business analyst who logs in to a Dynamics C65 sandbox, whether it's to um, validate or test a feature or to carry out a little bit of work, that's part of the dev team. So welcome aboard. You're, you're part of my, my dev team. 
if you're a business analyst who is simply logging into the requirement system, that you know the only system you're using is Visual Studio Team Services or Jira or Pivotal Tracker, then you're a delegate for the product owner and you're writing requirements. And I demonstrate the the done um, story or the done item to you for acceptance. But unless you're actually logging into the dynamic sandbox to do that work, then you're a, a product owner delegate. So that's it's maybe an arbitrary fine line, uh, Dermot. But that's that's the one I use. Are you logging into dynamics and, mm. and doing some work in there? Yeah. If so, welcome to the dev team. Yeah, I can picture Greta scratching her head going, but you haven't answered my question. Um, so I apologize for that because we've given you a yes and a no, but really it is dependent on the team and the dynamic and what role that BA is playing, whether they're, the role they're doing is in the team or the role they're doing is external to the team, more on the product owner side. Great question though. Okay, next one is coming in from Jeffrey. And Jeffrey is a Dynamics 365 solution architect in Utrecht in the Netherlands. And Jeffrey's question is, after completing a a Scrum course, how do you handle the sales cycle for Dynamics 365 projects in an agile way? How do you create a statement of work and a budget timeline for the project before you start? Uh, Jeffrey's customers understand the dynamic nature of an Agile 365 project and that scope might change, but they still want a high-level budget estimate and timeline before the project starts so that upper management can sign off on it. Mm, (laughs) Definitely a question for you, Neil. (laughs) Great. So I I use an Agile estimating and and project planning technique that I think is is quite different from a traditional approach, particularly in a pre-sales phase of a project. And the traditional approach is to have the customer detail as many of their requirements at a lower level as possible, estimate the number of hours involved and the tasks to deliver each of those requirements, add that all up, lay it out in a Gantt chart, figure out who's going to do each task, what their costs are, and, and so on. I think that is a fraught way of doing it, simply because it's impossible for uh, for a user to express what they want or need from a system before they see it. I just, um, I've never seen that work successfully. And in fact, in 50 years of software development tells us that requirement specifications are filled with holes and the English language just can't capture the subtlety of what somebody wants and diagrams don't work much better. So I tend to, to use a slightly different approach. I start with a technique called user story mapping that Jeff Patton uh, devised a few years ago. And what that allows us to do is to work at a business process level and define the the business process activities and tasks. I make the business process activities equivalent to an epic user story. So I write epic user stories for each of the business process activities. And that might be at a pretty high level, you know, case management for the website. Uh, That's represents a collection of much more detailed user stories that I really don't care about at this stage. I don't know all of the, the detail and I'm not a, requiring users to give me all of that detail at this stage. But we brainstorm all of those epics, hopefully with the prospective customer, if we have that opportunity. Sometimes in a request for a proposal or some kind of public sector procurement process, you don't have that luxury, which is really challenging. But if you are in front of your prospective customer, do that as a workshop with as many of your you know, future scrum team as you can. So you get lots of different perspectives and a diverse set of points of view on on those epics. Then we estimate those as a group as well. We don't allow one person to estimate them if possible. We estimate those as a group. We use the old Fibonacci sequence from planning poker and the planning poker technique to do that. But we use the numbers at the upper range of the Fibonacci sequence. So that's 
13, 20, 40, 60, and 100. Those represent story points, which are just an arbitrary unit of, of relative complexity. So a 20-point epic is about half as complex, on average, as a 40-point epic. Now we have a total number of points for the project. We group those epics into releases. So what makes logical sense? Well, these ones are high value and, and should be delivered together first. These ones later, and these ones much later. So there we have three releases. We know roughly the number of story points in each release. Now all we need to do is to imagine a scrum team and its velocity. So you might say, oh, this team, if we had you know these kind of people with this kind of experience, they could probably go at about 100 points per two-week sprint. Um, well, there's a 1,000 points in our user story map. So if they're going at 100 points per sprint, it's going to take 10 sprints. We know the weekly cost of that team, and you might want to use the client's resource costs as well as the scrum team's resource costs. And now you can calculate the rough order of magnitude of each epic and each release and the total cost of the project. And that gives us a rough timeline, a budgetary estimate that we can include in our statement of work, hopefully for upper management to sign off on. But it does take a bit of a leap of faith because we're saying that this is all subject to change. Your product owner can change the sequence at any time. It would be fair to say, Neil, that after doing all that, that it does come with the, the proviso that this is a ballpark estimate. It's not. That's right. You know, I fully really acknowledge that this technique does have a lot of estimates in it. There's the estimate of the team's initial velocity. There's the estimate of the size of the epics. So what we want to do is in the first sprint or two is to test all those assumptions. You know, what's the team's real velocity after a sprint or two? Are the estimate of the, for the epics you know, realistic whenever we start to actually deliver sm the small stories within those epics? So we can refine our plan based on the real data that we're collecting as we go along and then constantly uh, keep our stakeholders up to date on that. I've also seen uh, customers uh, release money in tranches, so maybe two or three months. And the beauty of Scrum is that you're delivering done product. So after two or three months, it's actually live in production and working. They can see it, they can feel it and go, hey, this is fantastic. Let's release more money and build on it. Or go, you know what? We don't like this. We didn't spend too much money on it. Let's can it. So they have the option there as well, Neil, don't they? That's right. So this approach um, does ask for less money up front. So that's, you know, from a capital asset allocation point of view, it's much more efficient. And it does cut down your risk as well, because you're not investing, you know, $2 million at the start of the project and waiting 12 months to see working software. Like you said, you're able to see it much earlier and ensure it's got the value um, or you're receiving the value that you expected. Brilliant. Great yeah. question. So thanks to everybody who um, who wrote in or left us a message. You can leave uh, Sendrum and I a voicemail through our website, customary.com. That's uh, the word customer with a Y on the end. There's a send voicemail button. So if you'd like to read your question out loud and have Dermot and I take a crack at answering it, uh, you'd love to see you do it that way. Dermot, how can people keep in touch with you if they wanted to send you a question? The best way to get in touch with me, Neil, is on LinkedIn. So that's www.linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Dermot Ryan 2. And we could maybe get a bunch Great of together. Stuff. And do Thanks, Dermot. So until next time, um, enjoy your, your Scrum projects. Scrum on, everybody. Our mission is to have every Microsoft Dynamics 365 project succeed using Scrum. If you'd like to learn more about Scrum and become a certified professional Scrum Master, visit crm.audio slash Scrum Dynamics to get discounted access to the introduction to Scrum from Microsoft Dynamics D65 course. 
course features videos, worksheets, quizzes, and a practice assessment for the Professional Scrum Master Certification Exam. It covers the theory of Scrum, its events, roles, and deliverables, as well as lessons learned through Scrum for Dynamics CRM case study projects. CRM Audio podcast listeners can get discounted access by visiting crm.audio slash scrumdynamics.